Episode 22 of the Bolt from the Blue podcast. In this special edition, I'm chatting to Ray from Man City Fan TV and Colin Savage about the recent four-part hit piece in Der Spiegel on Manchester City and financial fair play. Okay, Blues, let me welcome our guest. First of all, we have Presswich Blue, Colin Savage. Evening, Colin. Evening. Well, it's actually just about morning. This time, actually, it's the other way around. It's usually me. At that time of night, it's uh, just after midnight in the UK. Our dedication to duty Uh, knows no (laughs) bounds. Absolutely. And we are also delighted to have Ray from Man City Fan TV. How's it going, Ray? Thank you very much, uh, Mike. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, It's going all right for this time in the morning. Okay, guys. Well, a little bit later, we'll do a little review of the game against Shakhtar Donetsk and look forward to the derby. But I want to start off with the thing that everyone's talking about, and that is the four-part hit piece in the German publication Der Spiegel, which arose from the Football League's documents. Now, Colin, for anyone who's been living in an internet-free bubble, what is being claimed here about our team's ownership? Well, there's a lot of claims, and, you know, this is seems to be from hacked documents. And, and the main thrust of the claims seems to be that we've, and I hesitate to use, to use the word inflated income, but basically we've used ways to try and get around financial fair play uh, which involve Abu Dhabi companies giving us more money than they were initially contracted to. So basically, Abu Dhabi companies, and we're looking at Etihad, we're looking at uh, Arbar, we're looking at Etisalat and TCA Abu Dhabi, the tourist authority. Uh, and they, I think the term was, they seem to have been used as a, a tap or a, a spy gut to be turned on when we needed cash. So that's the, the the key thing that came out of this, I think. There's been things about today's absolute damn squib was Roberto Mancini was paid, partly paid by a company in Abu Dhabi, uh, although Manchester City paid this company to pay him. There's been issues about... Uh, w- w- one of the key issues, again, is the deal we, we did with UEFA. So obviously when we failed financial fair play in May 2014, we negotiated a settlement with UEFA. Now, that was quite within the rules of the process. So I think, as, as I explained to Ray on uh, Sunday when I did the bit for Man City Fan TV, w- when you failed FFP, if you failed FFP, there were four options open to UEFA, or UEFA's club financial control body, which oversaw it. One is they could do nothing. So it might be a minor technicality, for example, or the breach might be so small that they wouldn't want to punish you. The second thing they could do was impose a small punishment. Now, it's a bit like the Magistrates' Court and the Crown Court. There were two different bodies within the club financial control body. What The, the, the lower one was called the investigatory chamber, and that basically did all the day-to-day work of looking at the financial fair play situation with each club. Uh, and then the higher body, uh, the House of Lords Supreme Court, was called the adjudicatory chamber. Now, the, the lower investigatory chamber had some powers to impose a minor range of sanctions. So I think they could fine up to, I'm not sure off the top of my head, fine up to something like 100,000 euros. The third option was to negotiate a settlement. 
The fourth option was, if the case was considered so serious that a negotiated settlement was out of the question, or negotiations had taken place and been unsuccessful, then the whole case could be thrown up to them and they could deal with it. So they could basically impose whatever punishment they saw fit. I've never seen anywhere a tariff of sanctions set out in the financial play regulations. And I have read these regulations from cover to cover virtually. The, The negotiated settlement was quite a difficult one, it would seem, because City were in no mood to negotiate. So... UEFA, and it's difficult to know. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, I'm, let alone a specialist in European competition or sports law. There are some who, some who believe, or most lawyers seem to believe, that financial fair play was a very grey area legally. So obviously, I think the threat. Again, what seems to have come out of this is we made a very direct threat to UEFA. We would basically see them in court, and if if it involved destroying UEFA as an organisation, we would do that. Uh, and, and you don't know how much of this is bluster. You don't know how much UEFA work felt they were on rocky ground with financial fair play. But obviously they wanted to do a negotiated settlement. And I kind of get the impression, and, and don't read, uh, don't take this as gospel, that UEFA were more frightened of the court than we were. So what seems to have come out in this is uh, both uh, Gianni Infantino, who was the general secretary of UEFA at the time, and Michelle Platini, who was the president, they have tried very hard to get negotiated settlement. Uh, and to try and sum this up, and it's a very simplistic way of doing it, they basically said to us, well, name your price for negotiated settlement. So if you remember at the time, City, uh, the chairman, Kaldun Barak, said, we would take the pinch. And I think City probably rightly decided that it was better to get a settlement that was basically a pinprick. It didn't really hurt us a huge amount, rather than spend the next 10 years fighting this in the courts and and getting a bad name for ourselves, uh, not endearing ourselves to the European football authorities and the clubs that made that up. So one of the arguments is that it was an under-the-table deal, but it wasn't. It was a very difficult deal to negotiate, and UEFA were making their own threats that they would throw this at their adjudicatory chamber. So it's a, it was a very difficult to set negotiations, I gather. But and I said this at the time, we've come out of this reasonably well. or now Not perfect, but reasonably well. The one key thing to remember here is we failed financial fair play. So the assessment was done on the first two years' accounts. 2012 year end, 2013 year end. Our accumulated losses in those two seasons on which financial fair play assessment was based was just over £150 million. When you knocked off allowable expenses, that was something like £115 million. The target we had to meet was something around £38 million. So as you can see, we were a massive amount away from meeting financial fair play. So it wasn't as though the club, in in my view anyway, was trying to get to a situation where it threw so much money in, it was going to pass financial fair play. It was never going to do that. So the intention was is to use a provision within the regulations. It was a transitional provision that allowed clubs a get-out clause if they could show uh, wages they'd paid out on contracts signed with players prior to June 2010 were the sole cause of their losses. Now, it's a lot more complex than that when you come down to it, but that was a that was something we were looking to do, I believe. And interestingly, not long since come back from a meeting at the club as part of the City Matters Committee, uh, Omar Barada, who was the chief, chief operating officer of City, he's basically the man who runs City day to day, he did promised me he would he didn't know himself but he would get an answer for me so i believe we tried to use this provision and uefa made a small but very crucial change 
to their rules halfway through that process. And that meant City couldn't use it. So we were always going to fail FFP. We thought we had a get out, but then UEFA pulled the rug from under our feet, wittingly or unwittingly, and we didn't. So I think this is one of the reasons why the club were annoyed with UEFA. So that, that, that was one of the key things that came out, out the leaks, basically. Ray, I'm just looking at an article in the Daily Mirror by Simon Mullock. And uh, he says that what is going to hurt us is our failure to go to war over financial fair prey, basically go following through on the threat. And he says that uh, not having done so has left us open to pressure to take action against us by um, the head of the German and the Spanish uh, <coughs> leagues. They're putting pressure on Infantino to uh, take action against us. Uh, how likely do you think it is that uh, action will be forthcoming against City for these latest leaks? Well, I've just got to say that it won't be Infantino because he's moved on. He's moved on to FIFA. So I can see, and I think it's always been there, that the uh, German F, uh, FA, mainly through uh, Bayern, uh, Bayern Munich, and the Spanish La Liga, uh, however you want to put it, they're jealous of uh, the Premier League. And uh, they want to, mainly because of uh, the TV rights we've got, they feel they've got a, a better league in terms of quality, but we've got far more money coming into the Premier League. And that's giving many teams in the Premier League, even the ones right at the bottom, a massive amount of spending power, which is taking players to the Premier League. It's bringing players here that could be playing in Germany and could be playing in La Liga. And they want uh, the better players to uh, progress their league. So they're going to be on UEFA's back over this. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. You could argue we should have taken UEFA to court uh, in the first place to, uh, all those years ago. That might have worked out and uh, financial fireplay might have been um, kicked into touch. We don't know. It's, it's easy to say with hindsight. Um, look, with a little bit more information than we had at the time, uh, as Colin has said, that pinch that we took, it was a pinch. It wasn't that painful, really. And to get a lot of our... Uh, bad numbers cleaned off the slate, that pinch actually was very, uh, I think, very good for us to take at the time. So it's hard to say what was the right thing to do, whether it was right to take them to court or not, because at the time we felt we got a good uh, settlement out of it. And I'm sure no one would have ever envisaged someone to hack service somewhere and allegedly, or it looks like, steal a lot of uh, data, a lot of documents and uh, publish them and leak them. So uh, it's, it's a very difficult, as I said, in hindsight, we could say we should have done it, but it's very difficult to say what we should and shouldn't have done. Um, and Colin might have a, a different view or a better view on, on bits and pieces of what you said there, um, Mike. Colin, perhaps you could um, help us out here. Could you tell us what, in your understanding, was the uh, original intentions of financial fair play and how did they shift the, the goalposts? Well, if you go back to the original genesis of financial fair play, Michel Platini talked about looking to protect clubs from themselves, basically, trying to stop clubs getting themselves into financial difficulties. And and you can see what he was trying to do. My own view is his intentions were good, basically. So what FFP was trying to do, in according to Platini, was get clubs on the financial straight and narrow. Because the level of losses of clubs around Europe was, was mounting and mounting. And of course, football is a sort of financial arms race. 
you know, someone goes out and buys a player for 50 million, the next club goes out and buy, buys a player for 60 million, the next one goes out and buys a player for 70 million. So clubs were getting themselves into an ever increasing kind of spiral of uh, having to compete and find the money, and a lot of them were running at losses. Now, one of the things that causes clubs financial problems is, of course, debt. So they get take on debts that they can't service or have to be repaid or, or, or basically rob them of cash having to service them. And, and we've seen this happen a number of times. So City were in that position prior to the takeover. When we moved to the Etihad, we, we took on only £45 million worth of debt. But we couldn't really service that debt out of our profits. That sort of got sidetracked as the detailed negotiations of financial fair play um, went on. That intention got sidetracked. So if you wanted to talk about the specific thing we were trying to achieve, and sorry, before I do, I've got to say that financial fair play has had an impact on the profitability and sustainability of the major European clubs. There's been a huge decrease in losses and maybe even a net profitability among the clubs, certainly in the Premier League where revenues tend to be higher. In that sense, it's achieved its objective, but it's not a great way of monitoring clubs' financial health. It's a bit like your doctor sends you for tests at the hospital and the consultant taps on your knee when you've got a throat problem. You know, it's not answering the problems of clubs getting themselves into ex- excessive debt. So, for example, if you look at the if we if we take the financial crisis from 2008, now all banks undergo stress tests. So so basically the, the Bank of England, uh, European Central Bank, look at the banks and say, if the worst happened, if there were cure people start outside your door on a Monday morning to withdraw all their cash, would you survive? And banks now have to meet much more severe capital liquidity requirements than they did previously. Spurs, for example, they're about to take on potentially 600 million of debt to build their new stadium. But UEFA should be saying to them, what's your plan? You know, how are you going to pay this? How long, how long will it take you to pay this back? How are you going to do that? And Spurs should be showing them the sums and, and UEFA should be happy with those. If you look, well, our friends across across the city in Stratford, in Trafford, they've taken on debt, not for infrastructure, not to generate revenue, but just to buy the club. So, so the, the debt that the Glazers incurred to buy Manchester United has been put back on them. So, again, you know, they can service that debt at the moment. But UEFA, if, the, if it was doing financial fair play properly, and I'm not trying to single United out here, but they're a good example. If they were doing financial fair play properly, they would be looking at United and said, if your lenders wanted this paid within a month, how would you do it? You know, could you survive? What would happen if? So financial fair play answers a kind of a very minimal requirement, but it doesn't really answer the a real hard, in-depth analysis of clubs finances, liabilities, and future prospects. It seems to have started off, as you say, with the best of intentions. But I think you mentioned before, and uh, Ray, you might know something about this as well, that it veered off its original track such that City got into much worse trouble with them than they first thought. Well, most definitely. I mean, I think, in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of a few others' uh, observers as well, financial fair play seemed to also be coming from uh, some of the bigger clubs who wanted a cap um, on on their losses and they, they wanted uh, to block um, teams like uh, City and uh, PSG uh, later on from uh, getting to that top table. I mean, the, the Champions League had become a cash cow and you could see the, the clubs that were winning um, and getting Champions League, winning their leagues or, or getting through to the Champions League. They were drawing away from the rest of the clubs in their league and give it two or three seasons of this um, 
these extra uh, TV revenues. I mean, some of the clubs will, will be getting something like 20 or 30, uh, maybe even 40 million pounds of uh, euros more than the other teams in the league that weren't getting uh, through to the Champions League. So these leagues, you can see what's happened in Germany. With, it's, it's basically Bayern Munich. That's it. You can see what's happened in uh, Italy. It's Juventus. That's it, really. And in other smaller leagues, and you go to someone like uh, Azerbaijan, I think um, some people like Martin Samuel has, has commented about this. You've got one-team leagues because this one team goes into the Champions League or the Europa League or whatever. They get an absolute bundle of money. It's like Celtic at the moment. If Celtic squeeze into the Champions League but through the qualifying stages... Um, they get an absolute uh, shed load of money uh, compared to anybody else in Scotland. And that just takes them well, well clear of everybody. So you had this issue, uh, and I think it is, it is important that, I mean, uh, whether UEFA just came up with uh, financial fair play on their own or were they pressured into doing it? And I think, if I remember correctly from many years ago, Platini kind of intimated or said that they were pressured by uh, the big clubs to um, set up FFP. Now, I don't know why it's veered, of course, and Collins mentioned the fact that they changed this Annex, uh, Annex 11 or whatever it was about the, uh, the uh, pre-2010 uh, contract wages. So why did it change just to ensnare Man City? I mean, it seems preposterous that you could change something after the event just to ensnare Man City. Yes, uh, what do you think about that, Colin? Does it appear that they purposely shifted the structures of financial fair play after its... Um original good intentions to hit City and Paris Saint-Germain? I think there was certainly an element of fear. We all know who we're talking about. The old so-called Group of 14, the G14 clubs. As Ray said, they'd had it their own way for so long. There'd been no interlopers. You know, the old top four in the Premier League, it was United, Liverpool, Arsenal. And then Chelsea came along and broke, kind of broke into that top four. And then we came along. You know, I don't think there's much doubt that whereas financial fair play may have started with the best of intentions, it was definitely an attempt for those clubs who see themselves as the European aristocracy to pull up the drawbridge is the analogy usually used. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, when financial fair play first kicked in beginning of the 2011 season. That was the first financial year to be assessed. And there was a strict limit on what owners could put in to cover losses. Since then, since about, I think, 2015, the, the rules have been changed. And now an owner can put in, in theory, unlimited amounts, but they have to agree a four-year plan with UEFA to do that. So if Sheikh Mansour was coming along today to buy City, he could come, go to UEFA and say, look, you know, I'm buying this football club. I'm going to pump money into it. Here's my plan. I'm going to do it over four years. And at the end of four years, we'll be self-sufficient financially. And UEFA should, would, hopefully, could say, yeah, that's fine. You know, we agree these plans. They look reasonable. They look sensible. They look realistic. But, of course, that is exactly what Sheikh Mansour has done. But he did it at a time when the rules didn't allow him to do that. To go back for UEFA to investigate or reopen anything, definitely not. I'm far from convinced they will, that they've got the appetite to do it, or they've even got the ability to do it. But to go back and, and say, well, you shouldn't have put this money in as an owner, when they're allowing owners to put money in, I think would be a, a, a bit tough for them to convince anyone. Because I suspect, I don't say I'm not a lawyer, but I suspect that one of the reasons they changed the rules was because this notion of an owner not being able to put in funds, that, uh, invest in a business, was profoundly anti-competitive. So I think that the change they made, and funnily enough, it was one of the old G14, I think AC Milan, AC wanted Milan. investment. Yeah. 
The change they made partly was to accommodate one of their blue-eyed boys, but secondly, possibly, to cover their major legal weakness. Ray, there's a piece by Matt Lawton in in the Daily Mail. He doesn't share Colin's confidence about the lack (laughs) of... uh, forthcoming action and what he's looking I, I at can imagine. what he's looking at really is that basically things that UEFA didn't know at the time when they made the deal with City these further pieces of information showing to what extent City were funneling money around and apparently uh, his point is that it was on it's on such a scale that was not evident to UEFA at that time and so because of this they can make a case and they can say there's a whole bunch of stuff going on there that we didn't know about and that's why we have to take action i can understand that point of view and it depends on let's say the football tribalism as well i don't think there's a lot of uh, journalists and and fans coming at this issue objectively because you know there's people who are against it and any chance they can take to bash us they'll do that and obviously we as fans we are looking at we've got our blue tinted specs on and we're looking at the best for city in this uh, situation now my feeling is the worst that can happen is that you have say look you, you weren't honest with us or you weren't as honest as you should have been and i think the worst that can happen is that we get a fine and i don't think it'd be a massive um, impediment to our future because we're in such a, I think, in such good financial health at the moment. Um, I can't see them going back and saying we're going to exclude you from European competition because that would just be throwing oil onto the fire. And I think there would probably would be a legal challenge by uh, by City because uh, we'd end up losing the Champions League money. And I don't think uh, we we really want to be in that position to be losing fifty, sixty million pounds a, a season. So. I think my, that's only my feeling that the worst that can happen, we'll get a, a fine that we can handle. Just to add, just to add to that, we obviously agreed a settlement with UEFA in 2014, which we talked about before, and would fail financial fair play. Now, one of the key elements of settlements like this is that they are a full and final settlement. So, in other words, once we'd agreed that settlement, UEFA then would would have signed it and <clears throat> come to an agreement that they couldn't go back and revisit it. So, I think that's one reason why we one potential reason why we won't see action and again it comes back to the same thing we fail financial fair play and we failed it by i reckon somewhere around 80 million pounds so does 10 million pounds 30 million pounds here or there does that make a material difference no it doesn't we fail financial fair play but my only issue would be colin is that if you signed a document to say, a legal document to say, what I've done is truthful and honest and everything else, and it turns out that you've done... And if you were with the HMRC, if you come to a settlement with them and they actually find out later that you've uh, done something fraudulently, I think, if I remember correctly, they can go back 20 years and and challenge challenge you. So, I mean, I can see the big clubs want something done about City. You were for... I feel are reluctant to do anything more than they've done already because they don't want to end up in court. And it may be that, uh, like a few years ago, we meet in the middle. We come to a, another settlement where we are fined. That's uh, that's my worst case scenario. I think it does depend um, because I so say what I just said was uh, we we suffered sanctions for failing financial fair play. And does it matter if we should have failed it by a bit more than we failed it? You know. Um, 
will UEFA take a, a different approach? We don't know. Perhaps the more, more worrying thing was that as the outcome of those sanctions was, we had to meet a couple of specific deficit targets. So I forget what they were. I think we hit 20 million euros in the first year, 10 million euro deficit in the second year. And that was after uh, being able to add back stuff. So I think that add backs were about... 22 and a half million. So we're looking at euros. So I think we're looking at potentially being able to lose 42, 45 million euros in the first year of that settlement and then 32, 35 million euros in, in the second year. So we'd have to sustain quite a big loss to a failed FFP. Now, my, my one concern is, did we do anything that would have caused us to fail any of those sanctions when in fact we passed. But the other point I'd make is that we may not actually, we may have been very clever and may have not actually done anything wrong. So UEFA have got to find that we've done something wrong. And to explain another element of this, I think a lot of people understand this now. If Etihad do a deal with us, that's a matter between us and them. It doesn't matter to a large degree where Etihad is getting the money from. Now, it was certainly part of the leaks felt it's told the story about how UEFA felt that some of the sponsorships and what they call the second tier sponsorships. So we're talking about Arbar and Etisalat here. They felt this, these figures were overvalued. So probably I think they were paying us something like 15 million a year. UEFA's brand experts reckoned they were worth 8 million a year. But value is in the eye of the beholder. Now, I think we know these uh, from what we see from the leaks. We were using these sponsorships to build up revenue. But for UEFA to be able to impose, this is another legal, potential legal case, for UEFA to be able to say, well, those, that 15 million isn't 15 million, really, it's only worth 8 million. They've got to prove that Arbar and Manchester City are related parties. And as, as both Ray and I know, the concept of a related party is a, an old standing, long standing county thing, semi legal thing. And it's covered by an accounting standard called IAS 24. And there's no black and white about this, but it sets out basically what a related party is. And the whole point about this, this, these rules are that you don't want people artificially inflating income or not showing income they should have because they're doing deals. So it's a bit like I heard a case a years ago, someone I sort of knew that they were accountants who were involved in liquidations. So, of course, they go in and take over all the assets of the company. So uh, there were companies where there were decent cars and there was, uh, they basically realized the assets and pay anything that's left to the creditors. And they were going in to companies where there were very high value cars, selling those to mates at low value. And then the, the friends were selling them on the open market at high value and splitting the profits with them. So that's kind of a related, I guess you might call it a related party transaction. I used to work for a company and there was no, absolutely nothing wrong in what they did. But uh, one of the director's wives had a consultancy who did work for us. So they had to declare that to show there was no conflict of interest. So they had to say that company A, we'd given company A, £30,000 worth of business, and this was at commercial rates. Uh, City did it themselves, actually, in their in their accounts, where um, John Wardle or Dennis Stewart, who were directors of the company, they'd used hospitality facilities. And Dennis Stewart, not sure if he still does, but he had a business doing sports hospitality. So obviously he would 
used hospitality facilities at City for his clients, but he paid for those and he paid market rate for those. Now, if we'd been giving them away, that would have been declared in the accounts. In fact, it was declared that he paid full market rate. So the related party rules have a purpose. Now, but there's a very grey area in that the related party, they have to be related through someone controlling both entities. And the question is, does Sheikh Mansour control Etihad? Does Sheikh Mansour control Arbar? Now, in actual fact, that's an interesting one, because Arbar is owned by a company called IPIC, which is the Abu Dhabi, basically, oil company. And Sheikh Mansour is the chairman of that company. But even that doesn't necessarily make him a related party between Arbar and Manchester City. So UEFA would have to go through this legal battle approving they were related parties. They'd also have to prove that Sheikh Mansour is the owner of Manchester City, was personally responsible for funding the excess that the companies weren't paying. And good luck with that, because they have no compulsion to deal with UEFA. So I think they've got UEFA's got a very difficult job to make a, any headway in any sort of case. And I don't, I, I say, I doubt they've got the stomach for it. Ray, why do you think UEFA have been so silent on this issue? <laughs> Well, I think they've been silent because they've got to probably take some legal counsel as well to, you know, they don't want to, it's like City, City have said very, very little. UEFA said very, very little. I think both parties, to coin a phrase, have been caught with their pants down because there's things that have gone on that they didn't expect uh, to become public knowledge in the, de- in the depth of this, uh, it, it, with the way Infantino and Platini were involved in dealing with PSG and Qatar and, and City in Abu Dhabi. So I don't think they want uh, really to, to say anything until uh, until they have to. I think they'll, they'll probably do some research themselves. UEFA, I mean, before I think before UEFA can really do anything, they need to get hold of the documents because right now they're just going on the say-so of uh, the Spiegel. And, uh, you know, can you just bl- uh, blindly trust what a third party says? Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point because it would seem that these documents were hacked. So basically they've been stolen. So there's a whole other legal issue about can UEFA do anything with them at all? It certainly wouldn't be admissible in a court of law. And again, it's this whole raft of legal issues building up. If UEFA did take action and it was on the basis of those documents, we would have a very good case, I suspect, to challenge that on the basis uh, if we'd been if we'd been hacked, assuming we have been. Yeah, it seems I was interested in that issue of the fact that the documents appear to have been stolen and, and what ramifications of, of that is. I think basically the the hurt that it is is ultimately going to do to city is just the embarrassment of having particular <clears throat> statements or, or comments made by Simon Cliff and uh, the others these these emails where you know perhaps out of context a sentence or a statement doesn't look good and makes us look a little bit dodgy or a little bit greedy but um it's the reputational damage you're right that will hurt city i think city abu dhabi They've always been, appear to be on the outside very, very quiet when people take pot shots. They don't, for example, they don't seem to go run, running around suing journalists, uh, who's, who sometimes just made stuff up. And even if they've been, it's shown that they've made stuff up, they don't go suing them. They don't really, on the outside, they might do something behind the scenes, but we don't really see and, and know what goes on. So I think that seems to be the uh, one of the driving forces of Man City, uh, our, uh, the ownership by uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, is a reputational thing. It's it's to 
I mean, some people argue it's to make them look better on the world stage by having this uh, football team that's a brand, well-known, uh, great right now, great um, brand of football. And it just helps their uh, their perception abroad. And, you know, we, I'll mention it because uh, our detractors do. Uh, and it because our detractors talk about human rights issues and, and everything else uh, that and the restrictions that go on in, in some of the Gulf states. Um, and so maybe, you know, having Man City as their, one of their flagship investments takes away some of the, you know, people are going to look at Man City rather than focus as much on, on the negative uh, comments that people are making about Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. Colin, how would you describe your reaction to the journalistic coverage of these events? It's been very partisan. It's been very one-sided. It's been very sensationalist. I was just reading one of the De Spiegel articles um, before we went on air, and it's very, very biased. It, you know, it really, and City have said this, it, it is an attempt to damage their reputation. So, yeah, City are, I believe, keeping their powder dry for the moment. Uh, one of the things I wanted to pick up on on what Ray said was that I've always had this view that, yes, I, I think anyone with half a brain realise is that, you know, it wasn't Sheikh Mansour's dream as a boy to buy a football club. He didn't have a picture of Dennis Chua on his bedroom wall. I did. <laughs> and um, I, th- I think most of us see that there is a large element of this being a strategic project for Abu Dhabi, whether we like it or not. But it's been good for the club. No, so do we care? And I've always had the feeling that as long as the journalists stick to City, that City will take a relaxed view up to a point. I, I did have a conversation a few years ago with um, Vicky Kloss about this. Quite interesting. And, and she sort of confirmed that. She basically said, you know, we're working behind the scenes to get some journalists online. And you can see the impact of, of that now. But she said, we recognize that some of them will just write rubbish, whatever we try to do. So she said, it's just easy to ignore them unless they cross the line. Now, I think the line is when you attack Abu Dhabi. So they're happy to use City in some ways as a lightning rod. And I don't say that as a criticism. It's a a reasonable PR strategy. When it starts getting personal, then I think the gloves come off. And I think they're keeping their powder dry at the moment. I know that. But there will be repercussions. I felt a couple of days ago when when they actually went at Khaldun, and I think I said so on social media, that's gone too far because they're now attacking him personally. And I can't see him as a man ahead of the organizations over in Abu Dhabi to sit quietly and, and accept all these criticisms and to use a WWE term, the besmirchment of his character. I can't no, see his, I can see him at some point, if he wants to, he'll come back fighting and he's a very clever chap. He'll come back fighting very, very hard indeed. One of the things that, that interests me about this whole thing and how the attack on City is so vicious, really, uh, and, the, and the personalities involved, as Ray said, is that this European Super League got mentioned. And I think this is key to all this, because Bayern Munich are denying having any knowledge of it. But there's an interesting article in the Spanish paper, marker from a few days ago, a couple of days ago, which talks about the old G14 meeting to look at a European Super League. Just looking for the names. So I think we know who they are. Bayern, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United. Arsenal. 
Arsenal, Juventus. They've been meeting with this uh, Charlie Slitano, has the American TV channel that runs the International Champions Cup pre-season tournament in the USA. Now, the, the marker report says us and PSG, oh, Chelsea, PSG and City were uninvited. And this is going back a couple of years. There's the other side of the coin is FIFA Gianni Infantino is talking about a Club World Cup which is a more modest proposal at the moment, once every four years, which involves not just European clubs, but clubs all around the world, so American, uh, Asian clubs, etc. I think this is the core of this. I have been convinced for a while that we are behind, or, or we are providing a lot of the financial muscle for the FIFA-backed Club World Cup. And I think a lot of that has to do with UEFA and going back to financial fair play and the way they dealt with us. And I was told, you do not mess with our owners. You do not cross them. You only get one chance. And it kind of hardens my suspicion that UEFA or sort of the club feel or the owners feel that UEFA deliberately tripped them up, deliberately set a trap that they fell into. And they won't have liked that. So I suspect the Club World Cup and, and um, Infantino's having a bit of a hard sell and UEFA have, have been the kind of the centrepiece of the resistance to this, and then this European Super League. So I think there's a battle going on here between UEFA and FIFA, because whichever way it goes, one of them's going to lose out. So I think that this whole thing is, this whole battle is at the core of what's happened here. How does that relate to this attack on City? What's the connection? Uh, The connection is, I say, I, I believe that our owners... May be, may well be behind this Club World Cup, the financing of it. And that's a belief that seems to be growing among certain city fans. Um, so if, if we're attacking UEFA, you can imagine they would want to attack us back, or at least their proxies would want to attack us back. Right. And, and it was interesting that the, the last of these articles which appeared today w- was a bit on the theme of poor Bayern Munich. No, yeah. they can't compete with us. And that, to me, was a bit of a clue where this was going. It was very sympathetic to Bayern, very vituperative about us. <laughs> Until you remember that Bayern's revenues are actually higher than ours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Bayern's revenues in the last financial year were 588 million euros. Ours was slightly less than that. We'll, we'll possibly catch them in the um, in the current financial year or, or go past them. But why have they got a problem? As we, we said earlier, they are they dominate the German, or they're not not dominated at the moment, of course, because the third in the PL parlance relating to Liverpool joint top on points difference. So you know, there's a picture for me anyway. There's a picture building here. You know, why can't Bayern with their revenues, which at least match ours, and they they are part owned by their sponsors, Audi and Allianz, Allianz Insurance Company, Adidas. They are 25 percent owners of Bayern. So it's a bit pot kettle black calling our owners out when their owners, they have the highest commercial income in world football. I think it's something like, I can't remember, 391 million euros or 319 million euros. But it's, yeah, I think it's 391. Yeah, it's about 70% of their overall revenue comes from commercial uh, partners. That those three are, are big amongst that. I, I felt um, the mention of the European Super League and the Der Spiegel things, once you see what happened on days that, uh, of the Series 1 to 4 attack, mainly attacking City, the Super League, everybody knows about it. Let's be quite honest. It's Everybody knows that clubs have been talking about uh, a European Super League for many, many years. So I think Der, Der Spiegel throwing this out there, they're not throwing anything new. 
it's, it doesn't really damage Bayern to mention them because no, we no. all know it's going on anyway. And then they have this attack on City so they can try and pretend that they're being fair because, hey, we're not just attacking City. We've attacked Bayern and some of the other clubs. Well, I just think they threw it out there as a red herring to say that yeah. they're attacking everybody and then they part into City. And could it be, could it be possible that they want the Super League and they want UEFA to sanction City and possibly exclude City from the Super League? Is that a possibility in your uh, your opinion? This marker piece seems to indicate that they want us, the, the new money clubs, us PSG and Chelsea specifically, excluded. And I say, I think that's at the core of all this. Uh, and the European, as you say, you're quite rightly, the European Super League is not a secret because it's a threat that gets rolled out every time the old G14 want money from UEFA, more money yeah. from UEFA. It was the, the threat that got rolled out to expand the Champions League. It was the threat that got rolled out when they wanted a two a two-group stage format competition, which was uh, bombed at the, uh, with the TV companies. It was the threat that got rolled out two years ago when they changed the, the qualification so that the big four leagues automatically get four clubs, and they changed the, uh, the financial distribution model so that the historically successful clubs got uh, a slightly bigger share of the pot. Mm. So, I mean, this, the European Super League is the threat that always gets rolled out. Guys, I was listening to a very interesting debate between uh, Ian Cheeseman and Alex Boardman on this issue uh, on the the Wednesday Club, one of the shows that is released as a as a podcast on Excess Manchester. And um, one of the central planks of Alex Boardman's case is that he regards Der Spiegel, and he said this over and over again, as the equivalent of the Economist. Uh, and um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I was just reading some of the. Uh, Articles released by Der Spiegel in, in English translation, of course, but it's very, very emotive language. It doesn't seem to be even an attempt at objectivity. There's emotive words in there. You- Absolutely, yeah. I, I didn't listen to the, the podcast, but I saw a comment uh, on Twitter where someone said it'd been, he'd uh, compared it with the, the Economist. And I replied, as someone who used to have a subscription to The Economist, I really don't think so. It's a far better publication than that. And Der Spiegel, in my opinion, uh, only my opinion, is a very, um, like you say, emotive language. You don't get that in The Economist. I think The Economist is a lot more objective uh, than Der Spiegel. And and I actually felt as the week went on, the first first day's worth of um, things about City and FFP, there was some potentially explosive stuff there. You know, it was, okay, City are doing some naughty things here. And I thought, Possibly it would get worse and worse as the week went on. And in fact, as the week went on, it got weaker and weaker. And I was, yeah. I was just um, tweeting Jay Spiegel and saying, is that the best you've got today? I mean, to talk about uh, uh, yesterday, they were talking about Mbappé's contract. I mean, who, let's be honest, who cares? We know, we all know he's getting a shed load of money. Who cares about the, uh, him asking for a, a private jet? Who, who really cares? And about recruiting Pep. We all know really that. You know, City have wanted Pep since pretty much day, pretty much day one. So all these hush hush things that were going on, everybody kind of knew something was going on in the background. It's not, you know, once again, it's not a big secret. So I felt they were just getting weaker and weaker and then talking about Mancini today and the global empire. Virtually, it's quite impotent towards the end. There's nothing left for them to talk about. In some of these documents, one of the things that seems to have really 
ticked Bayern off is the claim that they just weren't able to compete for Kevin De Bruyne and Leroy Sané uh, against the might of Man City. What do you think about that? Their revenues are higher than ours. Why can't they compete? Maybe, maybe not. Bayern have for years hoovered up talent from around the Bundesliga. Wonder why they weren't able to do it in those two cases. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think they're talking nonsense. Perhaps it breaks their wage structure. I mean, when when, I, when um, Alex Ferguson I used to say, there's no value in the market. Uh, I now know that was because United, the Glazers had imposed such a tight wage structure on United, they struggled to buy anyone um, within that wage structure, anyone of kind of international repute within that wage structure. So uh, I don't know why they're struggling to compete with us, but, you know, they've been hoovering up the best German talent for years. If you, if you have a half, you know, if you have a decent season, Bayern are in for you. Um, but the, the other thing with Bayern, they were getting people for free. So they got Lewandowski for free. So they were taking people from the best players from Dortmund at the end of their contracts for free. So they were yeah. not even paying transfer fees for the, some of the best players in Germany. So how can they not afford to buy people like Kevin De Bruyne or Leroy Sane? And it's not, it's not like... You know, their revenue is not high because, all right, you know, the German TV money is not not as high. Maybe match day income is not as high. I don't know. But their revenue is that they've always been the fourth club in the so-called rich list, European rich list behind United, Barca and Real Madrid. Their their revenues match well, for a while, have been a lot higher than ours. So I think that's nonsense. Ray, tell us a little bit about Martin Samuel and why you think that he's our only uh, champion in 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 all of these stories. Martin Samuel, he the, the only thing I've got against him is he writes for the Daily Mail. Uh, he's so good and so honest and objective that he, he should be able to write, uh, write for anybody he choose, just about anybody he chooses. And he's been uh, against UEFA and the financial fair play from from the start. And I advise anybody to go back and look at some of the articles he wrote, especially after he met Platini. Platini, yeah. He had a chat with Platini. And the, the very insightful interview he did with him, and he talks about the people that are involved on the board making these decisions. And, and let's say, the, I won't call it a kangaroo court, uh, but some of, I'm not sure if it's an advisory board or whatever it was. And they're corrupt people. You know, there was, I can't remember the, Colin will remember the guy's name, the banker for a, that, I think he went to jail for a massive billion pound fraud or something. Uh, uh, Jean-Luc Dehan? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. And so he was, I don't know if I'm right, he was convicted of fraud. All these people who are coming out and criticizing, I and mean, they're all, they're, not all of them, but so, some of the big players have got big skeletons in their closet. I mean, they're not even in the closet, they're right in the open. And how dare they criticise um, Man City and, 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 our, and our owners? It's absolutely, it is ridiculous. Martin Samuel seems to be a lone wolf, you know, a voice crying in the wilderness on this issue. Don't you agree? Y- yes and no. Someone actually uh, introduced me to Martin many years ago, and they described him as a good guy, but he's a polemicist. So, you know, Martin doesn't do structured, measured arguments. He's straight in with both feet, you know, both barrels of the shotgun. And his argument is, on one level, a very emotional one. But, yeah, he has a he's always had a hatred of what FFP is because he sees it purely as 
pulling up the drawbridge. The G14 pulling up the drawbridge. There are journalists out there who take a, a measured tone. So uh, I'm a great fan of uh, Gabriel Moncotti. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's yeah. one of the few journalists who actually does understand financial fair play. Because most of these guys haven't a clue. Let's be honest. They're just parroting stuff. A lot of these papers, they're just reprinting stuff that's been somewhere else. They're rewriting the De Spiegel stories without any understanding of what they're writing. Uh, Gabe Marcotti does understand financial fair play, in my experience. Henry Winter is usually quite measured. And there's one or two others who sort of get it. If we look at it objectively, if we were standing outside, not as, not as City fans, and looking at this, we'd say, hmm, City, yeah, a bit dodgy. So you can understand even some of the better journalists taking that view a little bit, but they also see the other side of it. Ray, the whole thing with Mancini and these uh, two contracts that apparently he signed, is that even worth reporting? It's worth reporting, it, it, but it's a, it's, a, it's a day for a report. So, you know, there's, there's, I don't hold much value in it. And as I said, it's, it's right at the end of their expose. And it's just a tidbit that they're throwing in at the end because they've got nothing else to say. If it was important, it would have come out on day one as it's day four. To be honest, I'm bored by it. I don't read too much into the, the, these reports by day four, so I don't read. No, I don't. I don't worry about it. We hope you enjoyed part one of this podcast. Tune into part two when you can hear us give a review of the Shakhtar game and look forward to the derby. It's not fair.